Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Dan Hayes. Dan covers the White Sox for CSN Chicago. You can give him a follow on Twitter at CSN Hayes. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Absolutely. Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you. I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. I mean, I watched it forever and I wasn't very good at it, but a lot of people in my family were. Um, so that that started it probably when I was, I think my first game, I was five years old and I've been a fan ever since. And I, I think the uh, the way, you know, people love uh, instant, they, they the age of, uh, we're in the instant age now and it's hard for people to have patience for baseball, and, and I love the reward for your patience, and I think that's what has kept me going for all these years because obviously it can be a frustrating, maddening sport at times, but when you get that payoff, you know, like that September 2011 or whatever, the last day of the season um, where all the – everything went to uh, chaos with the Red Sox falling out and, and the Rays coming back, and days like that are what makes baseball amazing. Were you a big – Baseball card guy when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. And actually, autograph guy, too. Uh, like, as a teenager, I think I got, like, 700 autographs. And it's a way to keep myself busy during the summer as a kid, and it was so much fun. And, yeah, absolutely. You get any Hall of Famers in those autographs? Oh, yeah, yeah. A zillion. Uh, I probably have somewhere around 40. Um, I missed out on Ripken, and um, I missed out on Griffey, but I got – a bunch of guys. I got DiMaggio, Mays. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, so Jerry Rice was a huge one for me. Um, everything across the board, uh, sports-wise. I even I even got an O.J. Simpson autograph about four months before uh, he uh, his trial uh, or before the uh, the murders happened. So it's a crazy collection I got just of random people, different sporting events. Yeah, be careful. You almost got called as a witness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's jump into the White Sox. You cover the White Sox for CSN Chicago. The White Sox have made a couple of big moves this offseason. They first traded Chris Sale uh, to the Red Sox. They got Yoan Moncada, who is considered by many to be the number one prospect in baseball. They also got Michael Kopich, who regularly throws 100 miles an hour. Tell me what the White Sox think they're getting in Moncada. Even if he's at his worst, I think they think they're getting a guy that's going to hit 260 and hit 20 home runs and steal 30 bases. I, I think they feel like, you know, I, I keep hearing the Robinson Cano with more speed. Um, maybe not a great second base defender, but he's he's 21, so what do we really know um, at this point? And I, I think that when they look at that, they, they know they got an everyday potential stud who has way more than just 260 and 20 homers in his, uh, in his repertoire if it all works out. So... You know, they're, they're thrilled with that. I mean, to get a player like that, they haven't had a player that good in their system. I don't know how, you know, I've only covered the team five years, but I'm, I'm imagining we're talking about one of the best prospects they've had since that four drafts in a row from 1987 to 1990, where they got Frank Thomas, Jack McDowell, Robin Ventura, and Alex Fernandez back to back to back to back with first round picks. I mean, we're talking about potentially a franchise player, and, and I know that they're stack to have him and then when you talk about Kopech there too I mean to to throw him in the mix along with uh you know the Noah Syndergaard comparisons um the way he pitched all season after he came back from his uh, self-sustained injury there um they're they're thrilled and and they even the the two guys they got beyond that 
um, Luis Basabe. They got the good Luis Basabe. They're twin brothers, uh, Luis A. Basabe and Luis A. Basabe. One was an infielder, and the he got traded for I think Brad Ziegler in in, in July. And you know, I've, I've heard some rumors of stories that the Diamondbacks got the the infielder one, thinking they were getting the outfielder. And the White Sox uh, definitely benefited from that. And they also got a pitcher, Victor Diaz, 6'6", I think 245. Um, really good fastball, not much else. But they've, they've had some good uh, luck with those kinds of guys before and developing them. Um, Frankie Montas, who they traded last year in the Todd Frazier deal, was basically this throw-in guy on the Jake Peavy trade from the Red Sox back in 2013. And They've molded him into a guy that was the their number two prospect and somewhere around the top 60 um, in baseball uh, just by adding his changeup and developing that. And he had a, a fastball changeup slider combo. And now he's looking like I think he went to Oakland um, in the in the Josh Reddick trade. But he's looking like a, a solid bullpen guy back end. And, you know, when you look at the four. They they potentially, I think, feel like they've got a major leaguer out of all four guys. Everybody feels that way. Um, but at least with the first two, you're, you're feeling really good. And then you like the potential of the next two, for sure. And do they see Kopich as a starter or as a reliever? As of right now, I think it's starter. I think they're looking the same way with uh, Ronaldo Lopez, who they got in the Adam Eaton trade, although both could eventually be in the bullpen. Um, but if you're if you're if Kopech is your uh, reliever, ultimately a guy that throws 105, we saw that on the other side of town this year with the world as Chapman, and uh, I think they're feeling pretty good about that. I mean, we we've seen how much relievers have come along and and uh, how how important they are, and at the least, if you got that and an everyday second baseman or maybe a third baseman or a center fielder in Moncada, you got to feel pretty good about what you got, especially given how hard it is to trade Chris Sale. I mean. You're talking about a guy who is in the top 10 pitchers in baseball with a, a fantastic contract left three years and, and 34 million, or I can't remember 37 million. Uh, but really, I mean, it's a very tough deal to talk to make. And I, I had other GMs tell me that all along the last two years when they thought the White Sox might be trying to trade him. And, and basically nobody thought that they would get close to the value they needed to. And I think a lot of people are, you know, I've seen prospect gold and, and as far as like all the, all the pundits analysts, uh, on the, on that side, Jim Callis's and Keith laws really like what they were able to get back and maximize that value. And, you know, when you make a high profile trade, that's really hard to do. I, I remember when the Padres, I tra- I covered them from uh, 2007 to 2012. And when they traded Adrian Gonzalez, people thought they did pretty well, um, but Casey Kelly was the main guy in that thing. And everybody thought he was a can't miss ace and he never really panned out. He had a couple of arm surgeries and turned out the number two guy in that trade was pretty good though. Anthony Rizzo. Um, so, you know, I, I think it comes down to a team doing its homework on these kinds of things. And the White Sox are very high on that whole package. Yeah. And Chris Sale is not just one of the best pitchers in baseball. He's one of the best players in baseball. So he's going to cost a lot to get, especially considering he's under a favorable contract. So the Red Sox had to give up the best prospect in baseball and a guy that throws 100 regularly and two low level prospects that people really like. And I think that makes a lot of sense for both teams. But were you surprised at the haul that the White Sox were able to get for Adam Eden as well? Yeah, I think more so than the Sale one, because with sale, I think you expect the world. And then you got, you, you pretty much got the world for him 
Um, and then you're able to go out and get even more for Eaton. But I, I think that's another great contract. I think that really is why that happened. I mean, Adam Eaton, I don't know if he's a six-win player like he was last season, but even the previous two seasons, he was a 3-5 and a 3-7 win player. And when you're getting that, I mean, I think the the Nationals paid for a six-win player. They're going to probably get a four-win player, in my opinion, but they they paid for six, and, and that return was stunning. But, but Eaton is a good talent, and there's no question the Nationals did good. I think he's going to have to probably, I'm guessing he may have to go away from trying to hit home runs. He hit 14, I think, the last two years uh, with the White Sox, and Right field is a, a good place to hit home runs at U.S. Southern Field. A lot of his homers came there. And going to Nationals Park, that might be a little more difficult. But the fact is, you know, he had a 360 on base each of the last three seasons. He's a fantastic player. He is a, uh, a dynamite talent up at the top of the lineup. He just he finds ways to get on base and, and hits with some power in there. And he plays every day. He plays through things. Two years ago when he had maybe one of the worst seasons in baseball defensively, you know, he, he was, had hurt his shoulder to the point where he was for two and a half months sleeping, sitting up at night with a pillow under his arm. And he played through that and he had to have surgery after the season. And I I think that played a big role into why he struggled so much defensively. I don't think he is the 2015 center fielder. I don't know if he's as good as he was in 2014, He's probably somewhere in between, which with the way he hits is going to be fine for them. Um, but given all that, even as good as he is, the fact that they were able to get Giolito, who obviously probably lost a little of his shine with them last year, but Ronaldo Lopez really looked good in his time up. And and then Dane Dunning was the third guy, and the White Sox actually had him higher on their draft board than they had Zach Birdie, who they took with the 26th pick. But at the time of the draft, I think they were thinking – they had an outside shot at the playoffs and that Zach Birdie could really help them immediately. Um, and that didn't work out. Obviously they fell apart at the end of July and in August, but at the same time, they, uh, you know, they, they took him, they, they got a really good arm in Zach Birdie that they could be a future closer, but they liked Dunning even more at the time. They just needed Birdie more, I think. And, and they bypassed him. So when you think about all that stuff that they got a first rounder that they really liked and, and they got Giolito, who was the number one pitching prospect, and, and Ronaldo Lopez. I mean, I, the the feeling, the sense around National Harbor that day was uh, that the White Sox really got one over. As good as Adam Eaton is, I mean, five years and thirty-five million of a four to six win player is uh, it's a steal. I mean, you you think about him on the free agent market. You think about him even versus Jason Hayward, and and eight and one hundred eighty-four million versus a guy that's five and thirty-five million and outproduced. The other this year, you would take that that Eaton contract 100 times out of 100, but the, the Nationals certainly paid a heavy price for it. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think the sale deal made a lot of sense for the Red Sox, who are already a very good team. And this makes them, you know, potentially the favorites in the American League. But if I were the, the Nationals in this particular case, who are also a very good team, I would have just signed Dexter Fowler and kept all the prospects. I don't think this deal made as much sense for them, even though Eaton's under a very favorable contract as well. Yeah, it, it definitely was a little eye-opening. But, you know, you think maybe Fowler, they pay four years and, and $70 million, $75 million. I mean, it, that you give up that draft pick. I don't think that's a big deal to a team like them when they're picking the low 20s. Um, 
but yeah, it, it was definitely eye opening. I mean, there was just a, a total gasp in the room and, um, especially when it came out that Eaton was the only thing going back. I think a lot of people thought maybe David Robertson would be included in that or, or someone else. And when it was just Eaton, you know, I know the White Sox were ecstatic with what they got back. Now, the Cubs across town obviously won the World Series this year, and they went through a rebuilding phase before they were able to compete as well. Did the Cubs success both rebuilding and then ultimately winning, does that lessen the effect as to what White Sox fans are going through losing two of their best players? Yeah, I think the White Sox fans have been ready for this. You know, I I came in in the middle of a pennant race in 2012, and that team was fun, but it was an old core. I mean, it was A.J. Pierzynski and Paul Canerico. Adam Dunn was still doing pretty well, but, you know, Sale and Quintana were were virtually unknown at that point. Um, People knew locally that they had something in Sale, and Quintana looked like he potentially could, but nobody knew what, what he'd blossom into. That's the last time there really was excitement around here. I mean, 2013, they uh, lost 99 games. Jose Abreu kind of changed things. Adam Eaton and Jose Abreu coming in in 14 changed things, but they didn't have enough pitching that year. 15, they went and they added Samarja and they added uh, Melky Cabrera. And everybody thought maybe this would be the year. And, and they just haven't been able to escape that 75 to 78 win cycle the last three years. And really, when you looked at this team going in, it was going to be tough because you would have needed a center fielder. Eaton, he played an incredible right field last year, and, and they would have probably preferred to keep him in right. Um, but, you know, either him in right and, and you sign a center fielder or maybe you keep him there and you sign a right fielder, but then you also needed an everyday catcher. You probably needed another pitcher um, or a you know another DH, a left-handed stick. You probably needed a relief pitcher to add into that mix. They were looking at spending somewhere around 40 to 45 million in salary this year alone. And you look at the free agent market while there were hitters out there and, and you know, there is a, a fowler out there. I don't think they could have solved catcher very easily. I don't think Wilson Ramos may have actually sabotaged their plans. I think potentially they were interested in a catcher like that, that they could bring in for four to five years um, and when he got hurt, that really, you know, that catcher's market went away. And and Matt Wieters obviously is is still a formidable guy back there, but you know he doesn't have time on his side as much as other guys do. And so I, I think that once they looked at the landscape, it wasn't very good for them. And and really for White Sox fans, unless the White Sox went out and spent a boatload of money and brought in four or five players, you know, I think they knew where they were. I mean. You look at that rotation, and yeah, it looked great with Sale and Quintana and, and Carlos Rodon um, at the top. And and even at the top of the franchise, you had about 8 to 10 good players on that 25-man roster. 8 to 10 really good players, I should say, especially the, the way Tim Anderson came up and performed last year. Um, but there was that depth was just missing for the last three or four years. And I think people were ready for the, the turnaround. And really, honestly, this has been – accepted very well so far. I think they want to see another trade. They're probably getting impatient. They'd love to see Jose Quintana go right now and get another huge haul. But the White Sox are going to really play their hand correctly and wait till their price is met and not try to rush things, which is exactly what they should do. So it will be trying. But at the same time, I think people are ready for this change. So do you think that either Quintana or Abreu or Frazier, for that matter, do you think any of those guys are dealt before opening day? Or do you think those are midseason moves? 
I would go that it's on the positive side of 50-50 for Quintana. Maybe it's like 55-45. I just think that some team needs pitching, you know, they're going to look at their rotation and go, man, we could really use a guy that pitched in a pitcher's park for five years. And the last four, he's been a three, three ERA with 200 innings consistently. And man, if he'd ever had an offense, he would be a well above 500 pitcher, but the white Sox offense has just been so poor over the time. So I, you know, you look at that and you go, man, there's not a lot of that out there. And, and then you think about what it would be like if he was out there as a free agent and you're looking at, probably four and a hundred million or five and one twenty, you know, somewhere up there. And, and instead you can get him for four and I think 36.85 million. Um, he's a steal when it comes to that contract and what he delivers. And so the white Sox are charging a lot for him and, and reasonably so, but, um, I, I just think somebody will meet that price at either before the season or definitely by the deadline. Um, you know, Frazier makes sense to be moved. Uh, Brayu with with Bautista still out there, with Trumbo still out there. There's some good right-handed dump out there, and you know, a traded player it's going to cost more than just the pick that those guys cost. Obviously, a Brayu is cheaper, a Brayu is younger, and and that really is a benefit to those teams. But at the same time, you know, when you have probably more affordable options. It's going to depend on the team. I, I don't think he goes. Um, I think it's more likely that David Robertson and and Frazier would be dealt or or Quintana. Let's move off the White Sox and let's talk about the Hall of Fame for a little bit. This was your first year voting for the Hall of Fame. So let's start there. Tell me what was your thought process behind the Hall of Fame, what you wanted to do with your ballot. And I guess with every question with the Hall of Fame and what you're doing with voting, it has to start with what you do with the PED guys. So let's start with what your overall philosophy is and how you handle the PED guys. You know, that was one that uh, it's funny. Four years ago, I went on our local Comcast uh, broadcast and we were talking about the voting at the time. And and I said I would, without question, get Clemens and Bond's votes. And that was before they started gaining this public traction um, since Bud Selig went in. I mean, I just don't see how when baseball didn't do anything about it with better evidence than what we have right now that they can ask us to go back and and police this situation. I mean, if I had documents showing that this amount of players use PEDs and this guy did or didn't that kind of stuff, it might impact me a little bit more, but at the same time, I mean, baseball got back, you know, after the 94 strike, it went away for a little while and the 1998 home run chase really got fans back in the game. And now we see these record revenues 20 years later and it's doing so well. And the home run was a, was a big part of it. And I just don't see how, if they didn't police it, that I'm going to police it now. I mean, I just don't want to wipe an era off the map. And, and the other part to that, that I, I always bring up is the fact that, you know, at the same time that, that steroids went out, um, speed greenies were, were also banned from baseball. And, that had been used for probably a lot longer than than steroids were. I'm guessing that was used by players in the 40s and 50s. Um, but we're talking about something that was used for generations and generations and definitely was used by previous Hall of Famers. And I, I recently had a former pitcher tell me that anytime he drank the coffee with the greenies in it, it was like a lightning bolt shot down his right arm. And that's how good he felt every time he did it. And to hear that, to, to think that guys were able to do that and that those went the same way as steroids, 
Um, you know, we don't talk about the, that era very much and those guys get a pass. And, and to think that people weren't getting some kind of performance enhancer or finding ways to get an edge the last 60 years, you know, baseball's full of that. It, it happens. Every sport's full of that. We see it in, in NASCAR where teams cheat to get their cars better. And I mean, football, we don't even talk about the fact that guys are using HGH or whatever to, to physically be better. I mean, so, so when it all comes down to it, I just don't see how you wipe out the era. If baseball wanted to wipe out that era and, and charge all those guys and, and get them in, you know, in trouble for what they were doing, fine. That that's a different thing. And that's where the Manny Ramirez probably comes in for me. He'll be the guy that's the toughest. I did not vote for him this year. Um, because once the rules were in place, he blatantly broke them twice and, and got caught for it. And, you know, I think once that policing went in, that's where it kind of changed for me. I mean, I, I just don't know. He, he's a guy that I'm, I'm remaining open to my opinion on him, you know, potentially down the line, I will think differently, but as of right now, I'm against that. But as far as the guys that didn't break the rules, you know, I mean, Clemens and Bonds, I do, I think they probably did PDs. Yeah, I think they probably did. But I also know that they never tested for uh, or never received a suspension. And that that's a big deal to me. It's when the rules were in place. And so, you know, I debated a lot about that, but I've been thinking about that for five years, knowing that if I stuck around long enough that I was going to get this ballot this year and, and firmly have stood by that all along that, you know, those guys were in. Yeah. And it's interesting. I put in the PED guys who are deserving. I'd even put in Manny and A-Rod and Palmero, the guys that have tested positive too. I just think the Hall of Fame should acknowledge it. The Hall needs to stop pretending that all of its members are honorable citizens. And because they're not, they have members that have cheated in all different ways. There are members that have used steroids, amphetamines, who have scuffed balls. There are members who were off the field, were violent, who have, who have committed hideous crimes, who are racist, right. members of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, give me a break. I mean, even someone like Tom Yockey, who upheld segregation in the American League as long as he could, and he and Eddie Collins, another bigot, Hall of Famer, um, right. who was the GM at the time, like orchestrated sham tryouts for like Jackie Robinson. And it was just like, none of that is acknowledged. You can't find any of that information anywhere in the Hall of Fame. And I don't understand why they do that. Just put Barry Bonds in and tell the story of Balco as well. Why is that so difficult? I, I totally agree. And I mean, when you think about, okay, look, obviously the, the latter half of his career was definitely um, very helped out. <laughs> and and the home run chase in uh, 2001 was without question aided. Um, but the man was an unbelievable talent. And say 70% of the field was using PEDs. Well, he still was the best without question. I mean, he was the best player by far. And the same for Roger Clemens. Those guys still excelled amongst a field that was probably very heavily using PEDs. And I, I don't know how we can just say, hey, forget it. Just wipe them out. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense to me that that would be the route to go. But I understand why people don't like that idea. I just think that people that don't like that idea are kind of not paying attention to the past on or letting things go. And, and we got to be a lot more open to it. Yeah, and 70% seems high to me from everybody I've talked to, and no one knows for sure. 
I think right. the best estimate is 30, 35% of players that may have been using in some form, whether they're cycling off, cycling on, using heavy rotations, using <laughs> random things they bought themselves that turned out to be illegal. I think 30% of the league, which is significant if you look at a 40-man roster, that's like six or seven guys on each roster that we're using. Some teams obviously had more, some had less. And I right. think Bonds, I think Bonds did, I, I think there was a, a stance among some sabermetric-friendly people or saber writers at first that, oh, they didn't really get that much of a boost from the steroids to begin with. It was because of the smaller bar parks and expansion and the juice ball, and all of those things contributed as well. But I do think steroids increased their performance, and I think Bonds benefited from using steroids, but I also think that those games still happened. They were still major league games, and he was annihilating the ball and doing things we've never seen. They still count. They do. That 01 season was uh, incredible, and, and I happened to be Still in California, and I think that year me and my, my roommate got the baseball package, um, even though we were living in Southern California. And if you left him something, you if you made a mistake, it was it seemed like for about three years there that he barely got any pitches. But if you gave him one, he hit it every time, and that's incredible. Did you get a Bonds autograph? Uh, you know, I did. It wasn't my uh, favorite experience. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's one part where I like it. Um, I, I separate him, you know, and that's that's one thing I did with Kurt Schilling because I don't like his stances. I, I'm uh, and and the uh, lynching of journalists joke that he made right before the election, uh, or that he uh, said ha ha to somebody else put the put the shirt out there and he commented on it favorably. You know, I I, I, I really am happy with myself that. I do not look at those things and uh, and hold them against what these guys did because it, it would just be impossible to say that these guys are not outstanding players and hold my own personal biases against them. Um, I, I understand why some people do, and I never had to deal with either guy as a member of the media. Um, I, I, you know, Bonds, his final season was uh, my first year, so he was around a little bit, but I really didn't cover him very much at all, and. And so I never had to deal with these guys on a daily basis. And I could see why some people, you know, are rubbed the wrong way. But when you look at the numbers and, and the performances, it's uh, to me, that's what really matters. Yeah. And Schilling has lost a lot of votes. He's lost a lot of votes, mainly because of that tweet about uh, about lynching journalists or the retweet, whatever it was. Um, and it, I think his political views it, as a whole have hurt him here as well. And I think that's a bad look for the writers. I think to hold his politics against him, I just had Jerry Krasnick on last week and he was like, look, Schilling hasn't played now in 10 years. He won every award for off-field excellence that he could win while playing. He never dishonored his team or his teammates. He was never arrested or had a DUI. He never did anything like that. He won the Clemente Award for community service. And now all of a sudden, we're holding his political views against him. It's a bad look. And Buster only just wrote a column this week saying the same thing. I think this reflects very badly on the writers voting against him. Yeah, it, it's incredible because he's 24th and it's baseball reference base, 24th all-time amongst pitchers and wins above replacement. He finished four times in the top four and three times as the runner up in Cy Young. And I mean, then you throw in the fact that he was 11 and two in the postseason. That is, he makes a no doubt hall of famer. And, and, you know, one thing people always bring up is the high ERA that he has at 346. Well, he spent his entire career in, in hitters ballparks. That's to be expected. And if you take out those last four years when he was just kind of toiling in, I think he was a three, three ERA from from the, the first part of his career he was he was an excellent pitcher he deserves to be in um, again I mean I don't agree with 
probably 99% of the things he says. Although I do like his anti-bullying stance. That that part to me, you know, I, I'm on board with that. But at the same time, most of the – we wouldn't have a good conversation together. But I still don't think that should affect my ballot. And and that's how I voted on him. And, and I, I weighed it for a little bit. There were – I talked to a couple writers and it just – it didn't – when it came down to it, I couldn't see how I was going to leave him off that list. I, you know, he's still up a little bit in the uh, polling. I think he gained a little ground, even though he's lost what 20, he, he's lost 20 of his former votes, but he was still up a few percentage points overall. I, I think he will eventually get in. Um, but I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, that's why I, when I considered what I was going to do, I did not, uh, I did not hold it against him, even though we don't share the same opinions. Yeah, Schilling, as of this point, with I think 163 ballots tracked, he's lost 20. He's picked up 10, so he's net minus 10, I believe. That's bad. He always is a guy that has a big discrepancy between his public and private ballots as well. I think he's going to see a big drop when it's all done. I think he was over 50% last year. I think this year he's going to come in right around 40%. That's a big drop, especially considering how clogged the ballot's going to be next year with Trevor Jones and Jim Tomey and Scott Rowland and Omar Vizquel and Johan Santana and Andrew Jones. Those six guys are coming on the ballot. It's going to be hard for those guys in the middle to move up going forward. He he really needs for himself to, to have a viable shot. He needs Reigns, Bagwell. Obviously, Reigns is going off the list after this year, no matter what. But he could really benefit from a Yvonne Rodriguez making it this year. If they can get three in this year, you know, that was the problem for me. And I voted for Larry Walker over Vladimir Guerrero. And, you know, Vladimir Guerrero, at least right now, is trending above um, at almost 77%. But um, I wanted Walker to be part of the conversation. That's just astonishing to me that he is as low as he is for as good of a player as he was. And so I, I chose Walker for that reason to keep him going on that ballot. But for Schilling, more clearances ahead of him would be good. Trevor Hoffman picking up and, and pushing over would be good. Or if somehow three or four got in this year, that'd be a good thing for the whole field for sure. Hoffman's another guy who's had an interesting run here in the ballots that we're seeing on, on Ryan Thibodeau's tracker. He's lost eight votes, which is astonishing that people would abandon support for him when he was so close to getting in. But for every one you lose, you need to gain three. Plus, he needed to gain about 40 to get in anyway to put him over the top. So he's not going to get in this year. He's going to be in that high 60s, low 70s again. But I do think Vlad and Pudge have a real chance to go in with Bagwell and Reigns. If four guys go in, plus Smith goes off, and I think Posada's yeah. going to fall off, too. Uh, that does declog things, and it does help out for the crowd class coming in next year. Yeah, and, and obviously Bonds and Clemens making the gains that they have are going to probably, I, I would think they'll get close to 65, 60. You know, we'll see what the the non-public, the anonymous ballots do. But, I mean, they probably end up in that 65 range. And, and I think with the way that it, the push we've seen this year, they probably get in next year and, I think we'll get a little bit of a clearing out of this um, where hopefully we have six, seven inductions in the next two years. And that will help the Schillings, who obviously still has five years. And Musina, who is just as deserving as Schilling. He doesn't have the postseason numbers, but I mean, to spend your entire career in the AL East and to be that dominant. And I think he's 26th and wins above replacement all time amongst pitchers. I mean, that's uh, that's an incredible number. And, you know, we I think maybe Edgar could get in next year too. I mean, there, there's potential for, I think, 
eight or nine guys, really. It just depends on how the balloting comes out. But um, it, it's far more interesting than when we were talking about a couple of years ago when nobody made it, for sure. You mentioned earlier that you put Walker in over Vlad in part because, you know, you felt he was the better player, but you also wanted to make sure that Walker stayed on the ballot. Now, seeing that Walker is sort of comfortably going to stay on the ballot, he should get around 15 to 20 percent. And Vlad is hovering right around 75. He's at that point where he may or may not get in. Do you wish you had voted for Vlad instead? Uh, A little bit. If it meant that Vlad got in, if it comes down to one vote being short, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um because because vlad is a hall of famer to me i mean he was another one of those guys that did it all he wasn't obviously not as much of a base runner but you think about just amazing hitters guys that could change the game and and that arm was so impressive and yeah i mean it was hard to come down to 10 guys i I really debated at least 12 or 13 and i would have loved i would have probably voted for lee smith somewhere i i wish i'd come in before his 15th year on the ballot because at this point I, I knew he wasn't getting in and I, I kind of thought that would be just a throwaway vote. And, um, you know, you look at that, I definitely knowing that Walker is around, but I, you know, I wanted him to also jump up. I mean, he's gained about 10% so far this year and he deserves more conversation. That definitely is something that I, I want to hear people debate him. I mean, he's a guy that probably gets lost in that era because he played in cores, but he also played in Montreal. He also played in St. Louis. Those are not exactly uh, hitter havens. And, you know, to have 10 four win seasons over his career and be an MVP and a three time batting champion and seven time gold glover. I mean, the guy was, was amazing and definitely should be talked about more. Um, I'd love to see him get the kind of push that Edgar Martinez got um, late and and Tim Raines is getting late. Um, I don't know that's going to happen because he's only got three more years, but he definitely deserves far more consideration in my opinion. You've been listening to Dan Hayes. Dan covers the White Sox for CSN Chicago. You can give him a follow on Twitter at CSN Hayes. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Absolutely, Ross. Thanks a lot. And I am glad that both of our animals didn't get too involved in this podcast today. So Yeah, I had to mute my mic twice, but that's okay. 